0: Hello and welcome to APAC Weekly, where we bring you a showcase of our conversations on the APAC network. Coming up this week… The World Energy Council's Global Report Card. Australian research challenges accepted geological history. The monumental challenge to becoming carbon neutral. It's well known by now the global transition from fossil fuels to renewables is critical to meeting the world's emissions reduction targets, set out in the UN's Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Agreement. But these fuels, including coal, oil and natural gas, still remain our dominant sources of power, supplying around 80% of the world's energy needs. Every year, the World Energy Council releases its Trilemma Index, so named because of the energy trilemma which countries have to manage, energy security, energy equity and the environmental sustainability of energy systems. In its most recent edition, Sweden took the top spot, closely followed by Switzerland and Denmark. In fact, the top 10 spots were dominated by OECD countries, particularly in Europe. To explore this further, we're joined now by Dr. Angela Wilkinson, Secretary-General of the World Energy Council. Now, Angela, what essentially is the purpose of the Trilemma Index? Do you hope to bring attention to those not doing enough?
1: Well, we we introduced the the World Energy Trilemma Index framework um, nearly 20 years ago, and we use it to help uh, countries track, assess, and design their policies for moving forward. And the index has a global comparative ranking of 120 countries. So countries can look and see how they compare with others. But more importantly, it also provides them with their national year-on-year improvement measures. And we can also look at who are the top performing countries, the most improved, and who are the least improved countries and what can we learn about the policies that they are making and changing. So it's designed to be a tool to support governments and their stakeholders in thinking about how they manage the trilemma through transition.
0: So when you look at the fact that this index actually tracks national policy performance over time and measures progress against other nations, who stands out as a top performer over time?
1: Well, over the last 20 years, of course, the European countries have tended to come top in the World Energy Trilemma Index in terms of the comparative rankings. And that's because they've had a longer standing approach to incorporating environmental and sustainability policies alongside affordability, equity, and security policies. But of course, what we've seen in the last six months is a European energy crisis, which is cascading across the world. So we know that we have to rethink the security aspects of the World Energy Trilemma Index and transition management. This security crisis is very different to the oil shock of the 1970s, which was very much about constraints of supply. This is actually a demand-driven energy crisis shock, because it's countries deciding to uh, decouple themselves from supplies in other parts of the world that have contributed to these high prices and cost of living crisis. So energy security is no longer about supply side diversification. We now have to think about demand disruption and demand destruction in energy security.
0: You have often said that when it comes to the energy landscape overall, what we see today is crowded, uh, you've called it competitive and costly and we need to see more sustainable energy. Are we moving fast enough when it comes to this transition?
1: Well, the World Energy Pulse shows that most countries think this current um, global energy shock will accelerate energy transitions in all regions. But I think the important bit to remember is that there are multiple energy transition pathways. There's no one size fits all. Each of these pathways will have a greater mix of resources and technologies and will also use um, other measures such as carbon capture and storage and nature based solutions in order to achieve their net zero goals. And the other bit that we have to bear in mind as you when you opened, you talked about 20 percent of the global energy system is currently electrified. And only 15% of that 20% is renewable electrification. So as we take renewables to scale, we are finding new security issues around materials, metals, and water in terms of taking renewable energy resources to scale. Mm
0: -hmm. Is this part of your concerns, which you vocalised before, about the lack of energy literacy across stakeholder groups?
1: Absolutely. energy literacy, like financial literacy, is going to come to the fore. If we really want to address the scope three emissions of the Paris Agreement, that's the emissions you and I are responsible for in our use of energy directly and indirectly, then there's no way to do that without thinking about what we mean by useful energy and users and affordability, as well as security and climate change. And affordability isn't just about willingness to pay or ability to pay, it's also value in use. And our uses of energy are changing and our needs and how we're storing energy is changing and the costs of supplying energy are not being fully priced in to some of these comparisons around different energy options.
0: Now, if we look at some of the latest results that's come out of the Trilemma Index, uh, they show that renewables... Uh, account for over 80% of new capacity additions. But global carbon dioxide emissions still continue to rise. What is the solution here?
1: Well, I, our solution is humanising energy. That is, you've got to involve users and uses, not just think about suppliers and producers. There's, most of the attention around investment at the moment is about investing in new supplies that are clean and green but actually we can't address the Paris Agreement or the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals without thinking about the people side of energy. Who are the users? What are their behaviours? What's their understanding of role in energy transition and how do we enable and empower them to play their part? So I think the answer is humanising energy Mm. rather than keeping this conversation around the supply centric mindset that we think dominates policy and discourse at the moment.
0: Now, when you look at the geographic picture, Angela, of course, you're coming to us from from London today. We know that uh, um, Europe is doing fairly well when it comes to the transition. How does this region, how does the Asia-Pacific region stack up?
1: So, well, the World Energy Council operates in over 94 countries across the world. So, you know, I'm here in London, but our members are distributed across the entire world and all regions and there are big differences there are big differences in narrative as well around what what's the story of getting to net zero so in Europe we tend to talk about clean and just energy transitions in North America they tend to talk about resilient and sustainable energy transitions in the Middle East they tend to talk about circular carbon economy transitions And in the Asia region, I think there's five Asians actually in our our membership. There's not one Asia. There's also a concept of ecological civilization, which I find fascinating because it's the only frame really that says this is about people and planet, whereas the others are really about technologies and investments.
2: It's a fascinating piece of work that challenges our long held belief and understanding about how continents on earth were formed. Research from Curtin University, recently published in Geology, concludes Earth was hit by comets as our solar system passed into and out of the arms of the Milky Way galaxy. Lead researcher Professor Chris Kirkland joins me now. Professor, how did your team arrive at this conclusion?
3: Uh, thanks very much for the interest in our research. Yeah, so we've been um, we've been interested in the age of um, rocks for uh, a very long time here at Curtin, and we've got a range of analytical kit we've been using to to date material from all around the planet. And from this massive collection of information, we've noticed patterns within it. So it's really from this big data and the the patterns that are held within it that we uh, we uh, started to to infer these larger scale processes that have uh, have affected our planet.
2: Well, it really is fascinating stuff. So within the scientific community, how has this work been received? Because it certainly does turn traditional thinking on its head that external and not internal forces shaped our world.
3: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So as geologists, we normally think of processes internal to the planet, um, creating the crust we live on. Um, so it is a little bit of a controversial theory, but I, I guess just, you know, we look up at the moon and we can see a cratered surface and, uh, earth has obviously seen much more craters and much more impacting events than, than the moon simply because we're a much larger mass and we've got a larger gravity well, and more material falls in and hits our, hits our planet. So it's a, it's a controversial theory, but it's, uh, it explains quite a lot of observations we have. I mean, it conjures
2: up amazing imagery, doesn't it? What would have been the result of those comet impacts on Earth? What exactly did they do to our planet?
3: Yeah, so um, cometary impacts, that's a massive amount of energy that's being instantaneously transferred into the crust of our planet. So um, you can imagine a fireball coming in, hitting the surface of the planet. And what that does is it excavates a large volume of material from the, the crust of the planet. And what happens when you excavate a large volume of material? It's very much like on um, undoing the cork of a bottle of soda or a bottle of fizz. And you have um, what's known as decompression melting. So massive volumes of liquid rock would rise to the surface. And that's what solidifies and produces new crust. So um, The data sets that we have tell us about a shallow impacting process, and that's what we use to infer this periodic bombardment of our planet roughly every 200 million years.
2: Was this idea of linking land masses and their mineral resources with the passage of the solar system a new direction for science, or does it actually build on previous work?
3: Yeah, great question. So um, there's actually been quite a bit of work already that points to periodic mass extinctions um, due to cometary impacts on roughly the same sort of frequency. The, the thing with dealing with mass extinctions is we're limited to obviously only when you know, there's visible life forms or fossil record. So by looking at the mineral record, we're able to go much further back into what we know as geologists, we call deep time. So we're looking three to nearly four billion years ago into the deep time of our our planet and relate that back to these uh, processes of, of crust production. So there has been ideas already, but we're really extending that information into the formative history of our planet
2: so where to next for your team are you continuing this core research or is it taking you in another you know controversial radical direction
3: (laughs) yeah so i mean i think one of the things we'd like to do is look and see if we can see this similar periodicity this similar timing on other pieces of crust Um, so we would like to go to other cratons other old bits of the planet and see if we see a similar signature but also we'd be very much interested in looking and seeing at the the lunar surface and dating bits of the moon to see if we can see this similar periodicity, which would help to shore up this uh, quite controversial theory.
2: As technology improves, machine learning matures and quantum computing takes hold. Can we expect our understanding of the cosmos and our place in it will continue to evolve?
3: I think absolutely. we're already dealing with large amounts of data produced over many years, and that's what helps us see this pattern, this timing, this frequency of events. But we're also trying to link that into different um, subject areas. So we're thinking about astrophysics and looking at you know, quite complex simulations of how the solar system orbits the galaxy. So we're trying to link in these very different data sets to each other, and that really helps when we've got um, large computing power.
0: Europe is leading the world in transitioning its major cities to be cycle first. Amsterdam, Paris, Copenhagen in particular, have pioneered the implementation of low-risk cycling infrastructure and the public adoption has exceeded expectations. Asia and Oceania are well behind further compounding the challenge of achieving net zero by 2050. While lessons can be learned from the Northern Hemisphere, it's not quite as straightforward as resetting planning policy to embrace cycle first. Professor Matthew Burke joins us. Now Matthew is the deputy director of Griffith University's Cities Research Institute. Professor, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Now, in recent years, there's been a significant investment in dedicated cycleways and bike paths, but you believe, and in fact, you've been public about this, in saying that that's just not enough.
4: Oh, it's it's the rate at which we're developing that's not enough. You know, I've I'm quoted as saying this a number of times now that you know I don't have children. Uh, But if I had a child in the next couple of years, it would only be my grandchildren who might near the middle age of their life actually see a low risk quality cycling network in Australia at the rate we're developing it. Um, So we're not able to transition or make the kind of contribution to net zero that we hope cycling could make by the year 2050. And it's not just cycling now, it's also all those microelectric modes, the, uh, the light electric scooters, the e-bikes and the other uh, modes of, of transportation that have made you know, um, this kind of uh, shared path travel available to a much wider segment of the community than ever before.
0: Now, Matt, you're doing a lot of work on on this at the moment in in different spaces. At the moment, you're working on three projects with regards to, to cycling right now. Your first one is planning contentious cycling infrastructure in existing neighbourhoods. Tell us a little bit about this and how that's going for you.
4: I think we've got some problems with how we do transport planning in Australian cities, not just here in New Zealand, much of the world, actually. So, for instance, my my street out the very front here was resealed for the first time in decades just recently and they, they cut up all the bitumen, relayed it, and they relayed the street exactly like it was laid down in the 1970s. And the, the way the street is designed is really not good for pedestrians. It's not really good for anyone but but motorists who would like to drive fast through this neighbourhood. And no one... Came to this community and said, "How could we do three things to to do this better? Um, what what little things could we do when we reseal and 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 relay this street that would really make it better for you as a community? And there are some really simple things here that would have made it much better for walking and cycling." Um, and the other problem there, of course, is speed speed limits.
0: Mm. Well, well, let's touch on speed limits, um, you know, while, while we're talking about it. What should speed limits be?
4: Most of us live on a 50k per hour street. Most of us live deep in suburbia or in the grid of an inner suburb mm. on a street that really doesn't warrant lots of traffic, doesn't have a lot of traffic, um, and that, percentage of streets, probably 80% of urban streets in Australia should really be at 30k per hour. And it's not just me saying that, it's now the Europeans, the British, the Americans, uh, Washington DC, all their little local streets are now down at 20 miles per hour, 30k per hour.
0: One of your other uh, research projects that you're working on at the moment is one that I find particularly interesting. And that's that's the use of uh, e-scooters and the e-bike, the, the sharing systems, the public sharing systems that are out there. Mm. Um, what are you finding? Because you're doing some research on both the impacts, but also the benefits of these kind of systems.
4: Yeah. So we've done a series of studies here on these new public e-scooter systems. Mm. And Um, probably the one that got the most attention was the first to ever look at the tourism impacts of these these new devices. And we wanted to know where visitors were going with the scooters. And in particular, we wanted to know whether scootering seemed to affect their spending habits. Uh, And we had a couple of key findings. First of all, it wasn't just young men on scooters. There were lots of women And there were boomers on scooters so this was you know the myth is it's all younger people going crazy having fun uh here we had older generations gen x's and boomers using them in large numbers to do purposeful travel for tourism the other key finding was the the people they'd all paid the same amount for a weekend pass for their scooter travel but those who used the scooters more spent the most and spent the most also, it looked like from their destinations in what we would call mum and dad businesses, local businesses, local cafes, local restaurants, local retailers.
0: Just before we go, Matt, I-, I wanted to touch on this last area, this third area of research rather that, that you're working on, um, which is interesting for the businesses out there that are, that are listening to us today um, because you're working on the economic value of protected bicycle lands for the adjacent businesses that are around those yes. lands. Um, tell us about that.
4: Okay. So we did a, a kind of the world's first study on how people got to restaurants and how money got to restaurants. And we went into cafes and restaurants and we asked them all, how did people get to your business? What percentage of your customers come by walking or by cycling or by using public transport or by driving? And which type of person spends the most amount of money? And all the businesses, almost every business owner or manager, and we we spoke to the managers and the business owners And they would say to us, car drivers are the majority of the people who come here, and they spend the most. They spend more than someone who comes by train or by bus. They spend more than cyclists, they spend more than than walkers. Then we went and surveyed 300 customers, 100 each at different times of day and night, in these different precincts. And we asked them, how did you get to these businesses? That included people who were going to the really fancy sort of restaurants with their stars and all the rest of it down to more, you know, middle-class and type restaurants. And what we found was that the business owners just didn't understand their market. Car was responsible for way less income than what they thought.
0: A major economic overhaul is needed if Australia is to achieve a net zero future, according to researchers from the Net Zero Australia Project. The joint study is undertaken by the University of Queensland, Melbourne, Princeton University and New Group and shows that a net zero future is going to be far more complex than anticipated. Simon Smart joins us now, Associate Professor from the School of Chemical Engineering at the University of Queensland. Simon welcome, you've analysed five possible zero emission scenarios. you found?
5: So we came up with around 10 key takeaways. Um, Some of them I guess are more obvious than others that renewables will produce most or all of the domestic energy by 2050. Others like um, the fact that domestic energy share of GDP need not rise above today's levels um, were perhaps less foreseen.
0: Uh, Simon you've said before that we do need to think differently about technology but also about the required infrastructure that it's going to take to get us to a net zero future. What exactly do you mean by that?
5: Well the pace and scale at which we need to build infrastructure to transition to a net zero future is really unprecedented and so that means us thinking differently about how we go through the planning and permitting process. It also means that we need to think differently about how we go through uh, and think about our workforce. We'll need you know, one to 1.3 million new workers according to our study by 2060. Um, so that also means that we have to think about new training, uh, you know, location of where these people will work. Um, it raises questions for First Nations people, for immigration, for national security. All of these things need to be considered um, as part of the transition to net zero.
0: So who's going to pay for this? I mean, this is a costly exercise.
5: Yeah, that's a really important question. And so we've actually broken the results of the study down into the domestic system and also the export system because we modelled both. Because it's really important to consider both domestic and export emissions as part of this. Um, For the domestic system, which, as I mentioned, um, we suggest that, or the results suggest that, Um, energy share of GDP need not rise above today's levels, despite, you know, unprecedented capital investment as a share of GDP, um, the domestic system need not cost more. Um, And so that's the part that would fall on Australians, Australian taxpayers for the export system. This is something that we would probably expect to be locked in through, you know, uh, foreign nations or foreign investors, locking in contracts for our energy. And so if, if they want the energy that Australia can produce, then they'll be the ones that have to pay for it.
0: Okay. All right. So when you put this into context here, Simon, what is the actual scale of the transformation that's required?
5: Yeah, it's... it's um, unprecedented is the word that keeps coming to mind and one that I'll, I'll probably use a little bit too often. But we are talking for the transition to net zero by 2050. Uh, We're talking building uh, electricity generation or renewable electricity generation on the scale of about 40 times what we see in Australia at the moment for the whole electricity system. So that's around two terawatts of solar and wind that need to get built before 2050. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just. Uh, really mind-boggling in terms of the numbers. Yeah,
0: It, it is unprecedented. That is a great word to, to be using at this particular point, Simon. But when you look at what we need to do in terms of that scale that you've just put forward, where is that change, where is that growth likely to come from? Where is it likely to be the fastest?
5: So um, that's an excellent question. I think that um, solar... Uh, solar PV, you know, large-scale solar farms will likely be the winner. Um, They'll be complemented by onshore wind. Um, Offshore wind actually does start to feature in some of our scenarios, uh, particularly as we go out past 2030 or 2040 and the costs are expected to come down. The majority of the growth comes in what I'll call a northern or northwestern sunbelt though. So these are areas across um, the north of Western Australia, so around the Pilbara, Um, There are zones in uh, the Northern Territory and there are a couple of zones in central Queensland where the economics, the sunlight, you know, the renewable energy resources just come together to provide what at the moment we think looks like the most economically prospective regions to, to facilitate this massive export industry.
0: Thank you for joining us on APAC Weekly. To stay across the important conversation shaping our future, visit us at apacnetwork.com.